investigation of an umwelt of multiplicity from ancient Canaan, we focus more on the major deities, El and Baal. This shouldn't let us forget the Canaanite pantheon housed at least 40 transhuman beings. And we have to be cautious to simply equate text sources from Ugarit with Canaanite culture through at least the Middle Bronze Age to 1500 BCE. An archaeological site at the urban center of Gezer discovered a line of large standing megaliths some 10 feet in height. Their cultic significance is undetermined, but a similar set of smaller standing basalt stones with benches was found at an interior temple setting in Hazor. They include a seated figure with chest carvings that likely represent the storm god Baal. The benches are suggestive of a site used for worship or ritual practices. A geezer lies in the foothills of the Judean mountains, roughly midway between Jerusalem and today's Tel Aviv. That's considerably south of Ugarit. But by 1600 BCE, Canaanites were living in Gezer. They had constructed a fortified wall and towers for protection. Hazor is further north in Upper Galilee, north of the Sea of Galilee. It was a Middle Bronze Age Canaanite city from around 1750 BCE. Hazor has provided a large number of cuneiform tablets. Those from the Middle Bronze period are in Akkadian. Those from Late Bronze are in a local dialect used during the New Kingdom times of Tutmos III and the sway of Egypt's power. Figurines representing deities from the Canaanite pantheon have been discovered all over Late Bronze Canaan. They include Baal and El, and smaller clay or metal reliefs possibly representing El's consort, Asherah. But we must work with the materials available. A dozen or more tablets describe variations on Baal's rise to kingship and his defeat of the destructive forces of sea and death. And for our investigation, they give a sense of the tensions and dynamics within the divine pantheon. So here's an outline of the Baal cycle. The prior head of the pantheon was El. Now El seems to give preference to his son, C. C demands that the gods of the council give up Baal and his powers. C exclaims, I will acquire his gold. El concurs, saying to C, Baal is your servant. He will bring you tribute. But Baal does not concur. So with these clubs fashioned by Kothar Wahasis, who was the builder of temples for the gods, a club swoops down like a vulture from Baal's fingers. The club strikes Prince C on the skull. C stumbles. He falls to the ground where his frame collapses. Now Baal can pierce his body and drink C, finishing him off. It's often pointed out that there are similarities between this element in the Baal tale and the Mesopotamian epic Enuma Elish. In that epic, you have a counterpart to C, the fearsome power of Tiamat, goddess of the primeval saltwater depths. Tiamat threatens the Mesopotamian divine council until its young god of storms, Marduk, 
battles and defeats her. Marduk forms parts of the cosmos from Tiamat's body and then claims full authority over other gods and humankind. There are varieties of this myth throughout the ancient world. Many interpret the dynamic of the defeat or ordering of primeval waters and a god's rising power in the pantheon as being connected with responsibility for controlling seasonal rains that replenish the growth of crops. Back to the Baal story. After his defeat of the primeval sea, there is the construction of a house for Baal and a lavish victory banquet with a thousand jugs of wine and a goblet even Asherah, wife of El, must not set her eyes on, possibly a slight to old El. Then we turn to Baal's sister, Anat, who fights her own battles. She is killing people of the coast and annihilating men of the east. Their heads rolled under her like balls. Anat harvests them while still knee-deep in soldiers' blood. She ties them around her like a belt before washing and purifying herself. Her own power and authority being established, Anat then goes to El to get him to agree to erect a temple for Baal. In this story, we hear Anat's standard language of threat we heard before in episode 10. Anat warns El, I'll smash your head. I'll make your gray hair run with blood your gray beard with gore. So the building of a house of gold, silver, and lapis lazuli like no other for Baal is accomplished. Baal also finally agrees to having a window. The worry is a fear that death enters a house through its windows. But right away, on tablet five, to retain his right to kingship over the gods, Baal forces a challenge from another of El's son named Mot, or Death. Baal will send no tribute to El's son, Mot. So Baal has two messengers, Gopin and Ugar, meaning vine and field, signifying Baal's own power over the rains that produce fertility. Baal's messengers are directed to Death's world, a watery swamp of muck and phlegm. Now what happens is somewhat unclear, because Baal has already killed the twisting serpent Litan, offspring or manifestation of sea. But Baal is sentenced to descend into the watery depths of El's darling death. And apparently with no resistance, Baal submits. Baal hails El's son, death, saying, I am your servant, yours forever. Of course, Baal brings his entire retinue to the underworld. Is this perhaps so the gods know that he has died? Nevertheless, indeed, Baal the conqueror himself has perished. This causes El, who is now described as the kind, the compassionate El, to come down from his throne and start to worry. El says, Baal is dead. What will happen to the peoples? And in fact, in Baal's absence, the land of humans suffers drought and infertility under the sway of El's son, death. But Baal's volatile sister, Anat, comes to the rescue. 
Anat has discovered Bale's lifeless body, fetches it, and returns it to Mount Zaphon for proper burial. Then Anat herself confronts death. And in the second exchange, Anat seizes death and with a sword splits him, winnows him, with a fire burns him, with a millstone grinds him, and in the field sows him. Here the connection with human agriculture seems quite explicit. We have an inversion of ordinary roles. Baal, the god of fertility, is dead. But Baal must be restored by death, producer of infertility. Death's being destroyed and symbolically buried in the ground. So agriculture is a cycle of life and death. Perhaps one could say the fecundity of death itself produces life. Death is the fertilizer of life. In Canaan, this cycle occurs perhaps not with seasonal regularity, but with less dependable event-driven occurrences. Well, there is a lot more detail in this Baal cycle, and this forces us to ask what portion of the Canaanite population would have heard it told and be familiar with it and remember it? Which details of the mythic narrative how many would simply follow the basic plot and never think of multiple interpretations possibly drawn from it? We had said in episode 10 that the most visible elements of Canaanite religiousness involved a cooperative divine patronage focused on kingship and the responsibilities of ruling an agricultural population. And during the Middle Bronze period, Canaanite kings were able to exercise fairly autonomous control over territories surrounding larger urban centers. But by late bronze, Egyptian control over much of Canaan constrained the autonomy of these kings. So what were the consequences of this shift in power? Did Canaanite religious rituals and practices continue as before, in the same forms, or with differences? What can various sanctuary sites found across the land tell us with their vertical stones, raised altars, incense burners, food substances, figurines, animal joint bones, perhaps used for divination? Were these places local sites of worship as we might understand that term? Were they important in the daily life of families or individuals? Were they used for spiritual consultation or practical guidance. Think of it in today's context as something like asking a devout working Christian what being a Christian meant to them, and hearing the response, Christ died for our sins. That's it. That's the whole plot in a nutshell, from which one could easily infer the devout believer really was thinking that whatever sinful acts they committed, Christ's death on the cross would atone for them all would be forgiven. Hallelujah. One feels the disjunction here, that something is somehow quite wrong with that answer. That's too glib, of course, but we must wonder how much in the day-to-day -day consciousness of the non-literate Canaanite farmer or day laborer was all or part of the Baal dying and rising myth operative in how they thought about their work in the vineyards and fields 
or exactly what was expressed or hoped for in places possibly containing ritual artifacts. Now we've been looking deeper into the narrative of the Baal cycle as an expression of inherent tensions within the Canaanite pantheon. These tensions, in fact the structure of a divine pantheon itself, raise interesting questions about human experience of unforeseen destructive and deadly forces in the natural world. Forces that convey their own messages quite independent of how members of the pantheon presumably controlling them are characterized and understood. The experience of unforeseen illness and death, of floods or earthquakes. One way to put it is to raise the question, does a pantheon of multiple deities disperse the problem of natural evil? I know Alistair has thoughts on this matter. Yes, yes, indeed. When people suffer unanticipated harm, destruction, or death from a natural event, theologians call this natural evil because no human act of will lies behind it. It is caused by whatever entity or state is responsible for nature having that capacity. Now, if one's theology ties all events to the power of one God, a singular existing individual, there is nowhere to turn but to that God as being responsible. That raises the question asked by the biblical Job, why? This question is raised because one experiences the cause of the pain as intentional. After all, a singular existing God does not do things by accident. And suppose one seeks theodicy or divine justice by attempting to reduce God's responsibility, thinking, well, God has many things to do, or, or perhaps it is part of a divine plan that nature does things on its own. The result then is that God becomes increasingly irrelevant to one's faith. One might as well believe in some other entity or no entity as the ultimate cause of natural events. But suppose the responsibility for unanticipated harm and unwarranted suffering from destructive natural forces is put in the context of multiple transhuman beings. In a religious umfeld that is shared by humans and deities in some respects, then the pain experience seems somehow dispersed. Some natural events are attributable to demonic or monstrous beings. Some are forces owned by deities within the pantheon that have their own sphere of operation in the natural world. Any deity who is currently head of the pantheon, if there is a leader in power, may therefore escape total responsibility. The disjunction of natural evil in the normal experience of life is also a tension that is internal to the pantheon itself. One is not forced to give up belief in the entire pantheon as a whole. The pantheon is dynamic and changing to begin with. Ultimate causal responsibility simply gets lost in the gray mist ambiguity of areas of human experience owned by competing deities or for which no deity has control. The pantheon as a whole 
That's right. I am reminded of one of Wittgenstein's cryptic remarks in the Tractatus. During a discussion about whether ethical propositions express facts about the world, point 6.42 says they do not, and whether the will as bearer of the ethical changes the world, point 6.43 says it can change only the limits of the world, not the facts. Wittgenstein then remarks, presumably for one who believes in the meaningfulness of ethical judgments, that the world must become quite another. It must, so to speak, wax or wane as a whole. One can give this sense to the idea of a religious umwelt and to a person who perceives a world populated by multiple transhuman beings which bear meaning. Recall what William James said about states of consciousness that contain at their periphery a primordial valuing and sense of what is acceptable and not, and the actions that follow from these judgments, or do not follow, are avoided. A person with such a perception has a different sense of the world as a whole. This person sees and experiences a different world from one who does not share those primordial values. Now you're finally beginning to see what it's like in the world I live in. And that world does not have to be populated by vast numbers of trans-human beings, as you call them. Personally, I need a pantheon of hundreds of beings to represent the complexity of the world I experience. It seems that large reaches of the ancient Middle Eastern world and that of the Greeks and the Romans also experienced the visible agency of gods and other trans-human beings in each and every aspect of the natural world that human life encountered. Everything on earth was a response to something occurring in a divine sphere humans shared, at certain points at least, with other beings who inhabited it. But not everybody needed a city's worth of divine beings. In fact, some could do with as few as two to focus on the certain things important in their culture. How right you are, sweet Pentha. Here are two examples of a minimalist core multiplicity. The first from relatively recent times. It's in a creation myth told by the Haudenosaunee. They were called people of the longhouse from the design of their dwellings in which 10 or 20 families would live. They were known as the Iroquois League by the French during the colonial period. Later they were the Iroquois Confederacy of five tribal nations, Mohawk, Onondaga, Oneida, Cayuga, Seneca distributed across New York. By 1700, many had moved into Ontario and Quebec, but in 2010, there were still 80,000 enrolled Iroquois in the United States. It was from an Iroquois woman that Eupentha first learned the story. The second example comes from ancient times, from the Gathas, 17 Avesta hymns purportedly composed by Zarathustra that constitute the core of Zoroastrian liturgy, the 72-chapter Yasna. The Ahunaveti Gatha is one of five major sections. It is named after the Ahunavera prayer. Their language, Old Avestan, is part of an old Iranian subgroup of Eastern Indo-European languages. Some scholars have Zarathustra, the 6th century BCE, contemporary of Cyrus the Great of the Persian Empire. 
Linguistic and archaeological evidence suggests a time earlier than 1200 BCE. Bentha, why don't you tell us the first example? Gladly. As early as the mid-12th century, the Iroquois may have started to come together under sachems or chiefs who represented various clans. Theirs was a very egalitarian society. No servitude, no inherent superiority of one person over another. But Iroquois clan mothers did possess economic and political power. They met in council with men. They made decisions regarding war and peace. After attacks from neighboring tribes, clan mothers would demand a mourning war to console a family who lost a member to death. Warriors would then be forced to go to war or they would be marked by clan mothers as cowards, which in turn would make them unmarriageable. The Iroquois were farmers, fishers, hunter-gatherers. In summer, they gathered wild root, greens, berries, nuts. During spring, maple syrup, herbs for medicine. The main crops were corn, beans, and squash. Women normally went topless in warm months wearing a buckskin skirt. In winter, they covered their upper bodies with a kind of cape. Men shaved most of their hair, leaving a tuft in the center. No person was entitled to own land, but the Iroquois followed a matriarchal system. They believed that women had been appointed stewards of the land. Clan mothers raised children. They also appointed leaders. If a leader did not prove sound or became corrupt, clan mothers had the power to strip him of his leadership. Women held property and hereditary lineage rights, dwellings, horses, and farmed land. The Iroquois believed in numerous deities. That included one like our ancient Canaanites, a great storm spirit called the Thunderer. There were also three sister deities, the spirits of beans, maize, and squash. And there was a concept similar to the idea of Manitou you discussed in episode one and eight, Arenda. Arenda was a Haudenosaunee name for a spiritual energy or potency found inherently in both people and the environment. Arenda flowed through all things. If people were respectful of nature, orenda could be harnessed. It would bring good results in the hunting and planting. These spirits lived on earth and above earth. Many controlled events that affect the lives of humans. Iroquois ceremonial healing rituals functioned as a way to create balance in the society. A balance of good with evil. A balance of abundance against shortage and especially a balance of human behavior, of cooperation with aggressiveness. During festivals, men and women from the False Face Society or the Husk Face Society would dance. They wore masks to humor the spirits that controlled nature. They tried to expel malevolent spirits that caused disease. Some masks had exaggerated long noses, some were blind without eye sockets. Some had protruding tongues, spoon lips, twisted mouths. So now the creation myth. The first person to walk on earth was called the Sky Woman, Ayensek. She, or her daughter Tekawaraka, gave birth to twins. 
to whisk around created vicious animals in dangerous river rapids. Okwirisa created all that was pure and beautiful. Here is the version taught to me. An enrolled Iroquois woman explained it in connection with their midwinter ceremony. She said in old times, the falling snow reminded us that winter is the season for contemplating a renewal of society. The Iroquois midwinter ceremony is a six-day rite for curing ills. Mass curers visit houses. People extinguish old fires and light new fires. Winter is the season to retell the story of our creation from the woman who fell from the sky. The story describes how the Iroquois world was created, but it especially focuses on two primordial beings who provide an explanation, an ideology of how two competing cultural traits found among our Iroquois people arose and what we can do about them. Here is the story. In the beginning, in the sky world, a woman asked her husband to fetch delicacies she craved. But the woman wanted the root of the great tree in the middle of the sky world, which none were permitted to touch. Finally, the husband gave in and scraped away soil to bear the root of the tree. Underneath was a hole. As the woman peered down into it, she fell through. Birds transported her as she fell. The sky woman landed on the back of a great turtle. On the turtle's back, the sky woman planted bits of roots and plants she had brought from the sky world. She walked across the turtle's back, planting, praying, creating the island we know as Earth. The woman who had fallen from the sky became impregnated by the west wing. While in the womb, her unborn twins began to quarrel about how they should emerge. The left-handed twin refused to be born in the usual way and forced himself out of his mother's left side. When the Sky Woman died, the twin brothers buried her. She became honored as the Corn Mother, the source of corn, beans, squash, the three sisters of the Iroquois. But the twin brothers continued to compete with each other as they created animals and plants. The twins represented different ways of living. Right-handed twin created beautiful hills and lakes and blossoms and gentle creatures. Left-handed twin created jagged cliffs and whirlpools, thorns and predators. Right-handed twin was always truthful, reasonable, good-hearted and straight arrow. Left-handed twin lied, fought, rebelled and made crooked choices. Because right-handed twin created human beings, he is known as creator, the master of life. But left-handed twin helped and invented rituals of sorcery and healing. The world that was built thus included both competition and cooperation, aggression and loving kindness. After finishing their creations, twin brothers continued to compete by gambling, by playing lacrosse, then fighting with clubs. One day, grasping a deer antler, right-handed twin prevailed and threw left-handed twin over the edge of the earth. As a result, right-handed twin rules day and the sky and left-handed twin prevails overnight in the lower world. From the story, you see how the Iroquois believe that both left-handed twin and right-handed twin are necessary for the world to be in balance.
festivals, day activities, and cooperative work honor right-handed twin. Night activities such as feasting, singing, and dancing honor left-handed twin. This tension and struggle for balance between the two brothers and principles of life is incorporated into all Iroquois cycles of life. Thank you, Pentha. As with the large Canaanite pantheon, the Iroquois brought disparate human activities for sustaining life under a common spiritual frame of reference. Daily chores, cooperative tasks of hunting and growing food crops, expressive activities of song and dance and competitive sport. But in addition, the myth also integrates two opposed cultural forces, aggressive and potentially destructive impulses integrated with acts of compassion and healing. So there is a model for how balance and harmony can be achieved in society. It strives for complementarity and it is extended to how the physical world itself is viewed in two spheres, sky and earth, night and day. So, as in the Canaanite world of multiple deified or specially endowed beings, the Iroquois model of the world is not a question of finding a single source of natural powers with which humans must deal. The immediate world around the social structures of family and clan is already a multiplicity of forces and of two primary competing possible responses. The dominant task is to get these forces into some sort of balance, into harmony with one another. The creation of the world is not a consequence of just one of these forces. It is the entirety of forces bound together. The world waxes or wanes as a whole. The focus on competing divine twins simplifies the scope of the field of forces. It therefore simplifies possible acceptable social responses. Reducing the multiplicity of competing factors is like establishing the rules of the game in sports. There may be 18 different ways one can compete with the ball and the lacrosse stick involving many different groups, but we will settle on this set of rules and reduce the competition to two teams playing against one another. But having only two teams builds in an ongoing necessity for disharmony for imbalance. One team wins and the other loses. Therefore, the cycle of competition must continue. The losing team has a chance to even the score. Just like after attack from another tribal group resulting in death, there is the necessity for a mourning war in response. Of course, this is a form of life that perpetuates itself endlessly winning and losing, but continuing on to once again even the score. This system of self-perpetuating balance and imbalance may ultimately become a cultural metaphor for the eternal existence of the culture itself. The process of a rotating duality becomes a structure of meaning. So your analysis, Pentha, shows how the conceptual model of a world of multiplicity seems able to scale up or scale down. In fact, perpetuating an antagonism of duality should not seem strange. It has a long history. 
Our second example of a compressed multiplicity is the idea of duality in Zoroastrianism. This is from Yasna 30 of the Ahunaveti Gatha. O ye coming to seek wisdom, now shall I proclaim to you the message of the wise creator, the hymns unto Ahura, and the offerings of the good mind, the enduring sacred truth, and the glorious vision of the heavenly lights attainable through truth sublime. Hearken your ears to these best counsels. Reflect upon them with illumined judgment. Let each one choose his creed with that freedom of choice each must have at great events. O ye, be awake to these my announcements. In the beginning there were two primal spirits, twins spontaneously active. These are the good and the evil in thought and in word and in deed. Between these two, let the wise choose a right, be good, not base. And when these twin spirits came together at first, they established life and the denial of life. And so shall it be to the world will last. The worst existence shall be the lot of the followers of evil and the state of best consciousness be the reward of the righteous. Of these twin spirits, the evil one chooses doing the worst, while the most beautiful Holy Spirit of goodness, clothing itself in the imperishable heavens, chooses truth and righteousness. And so will those who would please Ahura Mazda with righteous deeds performed with faith in truth. Between these two spirits, the demon worshippers could not discern right. To them, deception came at the time of decision, and they chose the worst mind. With violence, then, they rushed together, life in the world to destroy. There are striking similarities between Yasna 30 and the Iroquois myth of competing twins, even given their vast cultural differences. Despite Ohura Mazda treated as creator and highest deity of Zoroastrianism, we are here told of two primal spirits in the beginning. These twins are spontaneously active. They are self-generated as good and evil. And they exist as good and evil in thought, word, and deed. And this is in a mantra reserved as the path only for those who seek the good in Zoroastrian thought. The implication is that evil has its own self-generated existence, independent of good. The second significant feature of the Zoroastrian primordial dualism of good and evil forces is that their conflict is eternal. It is endless as long as there is a world. Good and evil together constitute the basis on which the fundamental biological duality of life and the denial of life exists. This biological division is even extended into a future state of reward or punishment. That's based on how the individual conducts their life. Worst existence for those who follow evil, best consciousness for the righteous. The option for the believer about which path of conduct or thought or language to choose in life is a necessary option. There always must be that option. 
And this is because it is claimed that twin spirits themselves necessarily choose their fate. The evil spirit necessarily chooses doing the worst. The spirit of goodness necessarily chooses truth and righteousness. That makes the conflict of good and evil forces quite permanent, endless. This conflict is always present as an eternal ontological structure that informs the individual believer what choice for one or the other even looks like. Without never-ending conflict of the twin spirits of good and evil, there would be no religious life or moral choice. Now for the Iroquois, the primordial dualism of right and left-handed twins is a bit different. One is creative and the other disruptive, but the dualism is allowed to coexist within society as a complementarity, as long as the twins are kept in appropriately separate domains, one during the day and in the sky world, the other at night and in the lower world. Yet even here, right-handed twin is positively complemented by left-handed twin who functions as healer. And this is one way issues of theodicy have been handled. For example, by understanding the possibility for human compassion and healing being derivative on the existence of certain kinds of evil or unwarranted suffering. In the case of Zoroastrian good and evil, the twins are mutually exclusive despite existing as co-eternal. This leads to Zoroastrian theology being one of eternal warfare. The fundamental dualism is never resolved. A structure of eternal warfare is the necessary ontology of the world. The Zoroastrian compressed form of dualistic multiplicity exists even within a tradition that largely regards itself as monotheistic. The desired predominance of Ahura Mazda may be more visible in verses where Ahura presides over the ultimate retribution for the evil ones, and it is Ahura that establishes the kingdom of heaven. Nevertheless, this is immediately followed by declaring that religious life is a matter of making progress towards perfection. Verse 9, so may we be like those making the world progress toward perfection. The existence of religious life itself requires always addressing the primordial and eternal conflict of good and evil. It is always a matter of reaching towards perfection, but never clearly eliminating evil as a guaranteed end state. How much this ontological structure is retained by those who today practice Zoroastrianism and its variants in Armenia, Georgia, and Central Asia, as well as in the orthodoxy of Middle Persian priestly writings in Iran is cloudy. It is possible the eternal conflict of the primordial twins of good and evil represents an older strain of ancient Persian religion and that the monotheistic emphasis of Mazda worship was overlaid on that. Very briefly, a second dualism present in this religious framework is that between mind, menog, and matter, Getic. A primeval conflict of mind and matter, light and darkness, came to play a significant role in Manichaeism. This was the dualistic religious system 
founded by Persian prophet Mani in the third century CE in the Sasanian Empire. Manichaeism used the name Ormazd Bey for the primal original man and emanation of Zervon. Zervon, a kind of first principle, is the primordial creator who itself engenders equal opposing twins of Ahura Mazda and Ankra Menu. Manichaeism also incorporated elements of Christian and Gnostic beliefs into a rather elaborate cosmology where an eternal competing conflict between the spiritual, non-physical world of light and the evil, material world of darkness plays out. For Mani, the goal of salvation was to escape the world of matter and return to the world of light. Manichaeism became popular in the Roman Empire and survived in eastern Turkestan, Xinjiang, China, until the 13th century CE. But the Zoroastrian dualism of primordial conflict between the twins of good and evil does not divide reality into mind and matter. In the pastoral, but often abstract poetry of the Gothas, creation includes both conscious thought and matter. These are not themselves in conflict, but more like two differing modes of perception. At bottom, it is better to understand the Gathas as representing a new ethical message of sustaining Asha. This is the complex Zoroastrian concept of goodness, truth, righteousness, and especially order or right working against the forces of chaos and deceit. In this sense, Asha is not unlike the Hindu Dharma, that sense of moral duty which also constitutes the moral order of the universe, an order in which human moral life participates. The cooperative element in the ethical dimensions of the Gathas is important. Against Angramenu, the source of all evil and sinfulness in the universe, Ahura Mazda is not singly omnipotent. The engagement of human moral action is also essential in the struggle of sorting out existence. So in terms of locating precisely where divine power lies, whether dispersed among multiple beings in a divine pantheon, or existing between two primordial principles instantiated as twin spiritual entities, good and evil, the diffusion of power makes power malleable. Different members of the pantheon, a pantheon of two or of many, must compete for supremacy. But the diffusion of power, this inherent competition, is also what gives individual human beings access to different kinds of power. Whether humans enjoy the status of quasi-divine beings or are simply individual followers of such a theology, power is always a changing attribute. It is not exclusively inherent in any one divine entity. That will be the case in the monotheistic concept of a god as a singular existing individual. We will see the concentration of power in only one place often results in harsh, disastrous effects 
as shown in even a quick reading of the Acts of the Bible's singular divine being, a being free to exercise power in any way he sees fit. Joshua's conquest of Canaan presents an account in which Yahweh commands that Joshua and his army annihilate the inhabitants of Canaanite towns simply because they are Canaanite. Power unchallenged is always power potentially abused, and perhaps an insurmountable theological challenge. Speaking of a structure of eternal warfare as the necessary ontology of the world, in the Zoroastrian eternal conflict between good and evil twins, or in the Iroquois continually repeating a mourning war to avenge death from an attack, I am reminded of the Dani people. This tribe of Papuans in West New Guinea ritualized a system of intertribal warfare and revenge. In the mountains, neighboring groups of Dani clans were separated by uncultivated strips of no man's land. That's where the warfare took place. The clan groups engaged in frequent formal battles, but it was a kind of ritual warfare. When a single warrior of one clan was killed in battle or died from a wound or when a woman or child lost their life in an enemy raid, warfare would then end for the time being. The victors celebrated and the victims mourned, but each death had to be avenged. And so there arose the perpetual need to continually readjust the balance, to appease spirits of the aggrieved, satisfied ghosts of the slain. This was accomplished by re-engaging in warfare until a single enemy life was taken as compensation. Then the cycle would start all over again. There was no thought in the Donny world of wars ever being suspended unless it rained or became dark. But without war, there would be no way to satisfy the ghosts. This odd form of warfare was the best way they knew how to keep their terrible harmony. It was as they invented war as a game, as a game in which life otherwise would be hard, dull, unbearable, a witness to power unchallenged as power abused. Well, this may be a good place to pause things before too much power abuses us. Yeah.